Welcome to Otaku Brothers, your friendly neighborhood gaming podcast featuring Rusty and Ryan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 139 of Otaku Brothers. My name is Rusty, and I am actually not joined by my forever co-host, and brother-in-law Ryan this evening, but I feel like I might be joined by the next best person. I'm actually joined by the first guest we ever had on the podcast nearly four years ago on episode nine. So I figured, why not see if he'll come back 130 episodes later and he was willing and able. So welcoming back after nearly four years, Pete Dorr. Pete, how you doing? That is an intro that really makes me feel old. <laughs> I honestly cannot believe that was four years ago. Like, not, no joke, that that feels like maybe two years at the most. Crazy how time is flying. But yeah, thanks for having me back on. Pleasure. Um, looking forward to tonight's episode. Absolutely. And just to kind of put things into perspective here, Pete. So nearly four years ago, that's kind of about the same time that I started getting into watching people on Twitch and, of course, starting to tune into your streams. And at that time... You remember, I'm sure your back remembers, when you were streaming 11-hour Dark Cloud speedruns? Oh, yeah. I, I I can't even fathom doing something like that these days, to be honest. I don't know how I would be able to sit there for 11 hours without, like, a break. It's just kind of crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, it's wild stuff. You, we were also playing Life of Black Tiger uh, multiplayer with all the doorknobs in your fun community. You were still playing the craziest crane game ever in Tereba. So, um, yeah. And I think you were also around that time starting to learn the speed run to Final Fantasy 13. So really crazy times. I too cannot believe that that was four stinking years ago. It's crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Wow. But we're not here to age ourselves, Pete. We're here to have a fun time. For those that are maybe tuning into the show for the very first time, I usually do have a co-host, Ryan, my brother-in-law. We talk about video games. We talk about movies, TV shows. Really anything under the sun, it's a pretty free-form show in that sense. But Ryan could not tune in to this particular episode, so Pete and I have a whole fun agenda lined up for all of you good people out there. Of course, with any guest on the show, we kind of have to kick it off introducing that person, getting to know them a little bit with some questions. So I have some stuff queued up that I think should be pretty interesting, and I had to go back and actually listen to the last episode that we had you on, Pete, just to kind of make sure I wasn't double dipping on questions or anything like that. And it was it's actually funny, before I get into the rest of the agenda, just as a side tangent here, listening back at the time, we were also speculating on, we were had kind of just come off the heels of some of the news at E3 and Elder Scrolls 6 was just announced. And we were talking about how excited we were for that game to come out in four to five years. And uh, <laughs> four to five years. Hasn't aged well. Four to five years later, we haven't even seen gameplay yet. Yeah, I don't think we've seen <laughs> anything that's more. that's not really unexpected. No, no, it's definitely not. Not with Bethesda games nowadays. But um, we were also talking about, can you imagine if Final Fantasy VII Remake launches with the PS5? How crazy would that be? We were also talking about that. I mean, it it almost kind of did, almost, but not not quite, but almost there. Yeah, might as well have. I think it was just a few months prior to the the PS5 coming out as well as the Series X and S. So yeah, fun things on that episode. So if you hadn't tuned into that episode, I I definitely go back and listen to it. It it was definitely a fun time. But outside of the questions I have lined up for Pete this evening, 
We also, of course, as we do every episode of Otaku Brothers, have to talk about the games that we are playing recently. I have more Series X impressions with some of the games I've been popping in and playing. And it's been four years since Pete's talked about the games he's been playing. So I'm, I'm planned on, or I plan on, you know, going to the grocery store, cooking some dinner, leaving Pete by himself, and, and just kind of bringing the listeners up to speed with the games he's been playing over the past four years. So I hope you're prepared, Pete. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. Maybe not quite four, four years, but maybe, uh, you know, last few weeks potentially. Okay. Okay. That, that's good enough. Yeah. That'll be good enough for the listeners. And then, of course, we have a main topic of the show for all you fine people. I have queued up. Uh, what do we consider a fun trivia segment? So I'm going to pick Pete's brain. I'm going to put his knowledge to the test. I can't give any spoilers. You're just going to have to listen to the tail end of the show to figure out what I have queued up for Pete. All right. All of that being said, as I always say on every episode, I hope this episode finds everyone well. Hopefully you have your feet kicked up. You're playing some good games. Pete and I are hopefully going to, you know, keep you entertained for the next hour and a half or so. But Pete, I think your reputation kind of precedes you for the the most of the the people that listen to this show. But for anyone new out there that might not know who you are, enlighten the good people. Share a little bit about all the great things you've been doing over the years on YouTube, podcasting, and more recently on Twitch. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So uh, I pretty much got my start and uh, gained some popularity on the, the content creator side of things back in 2008, a time on YouTube when... Um, Doing a search for like game room tours would only produce a handful of results or things such as like showing off your your collections like, hey, I'm going to show you guys my PlayStation 2 collection was still a new and sort of alien kind of thing to find on YouTube's platform. And I was one of the earliest pioneers of that form of content. So obviously that helped me kind of snowball um, my viewer base and it kind of just took off from there because there weren't a lot of collecting based like, hey, let's sit down in front of a camera and talk about just the games that I'm picking up and playing and whatnot Mm -hmm. so that really helped uh, me rise to uh, some sort of notoriety i guess on youtube and that went on for many 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 years until i uh, started streaming a bit more full-time on twitch i'd say i started that about full-time like six years ago my first stream was actually in january 2009 which is which is kind of crazy because a lot of people didn't even know that you can stream that long ago but it was it was definitely a thing the first stream I ever did was actually sitting down in front of a camera and just talking to people and answering questions about games and whatnot. Very cool. And uh, yeah, still doing it now, still streaming all kinds of stuff, retro, modern, got a great community. And, uh, you know, now I'm kind of known for my, my eBay streams on Saturday nights, which mm-hmm. is a fun thing. People just pop into and chill kind of end, end their work week. And uh, yeah, really grateful for the community and, and listeners and viewers that I have. Absolutely. Yeah, and I would just echo... All of that, uh, you know, I think I've mentioned it certainly on episode nine when you were on. I probably mentioned it many times over the course of this podcast and certainly my own personal YouTube channel that you are a a very big influence, Pete, kind of for me to get into that kind of content creation space, both on YouTube and then certainly, you know, podcasting. And I kind of um, I was streaming on Twitch for a little bit there, too. And you you were certainly an inspiration for for that um, for me as well. But, you know, one of the things that I also kind of want to get into, you know, these questions that I have for you, you know. Episode nine, I kind of talked about, you know, how you got into games and all that kind of stuff and double clicked into, you know, your favorite games of all time. But I want to mix things up a little bit, maybe get into some more interesting territory. And so the first question I have for you, you kind of talked about, you know, six years ago, you kind of started or made the decision to go onto Twitch streaming full time, all of that good stuff. I'm curious, what what would you have liked to have gotten into career wise or what were your kind of plans 
had you not gotten into streaming on Twitch full time? Uh, I was actually in this crossroads of being ready to start pursuing like teaching English in Japan. So I was actually uh, about ready to like I was researching and looking into this very heavily at the time. And because uh, I, I had done a minor in Japanese studies in college and whatnot. So I was like, you know, I was I, I had done study abroad in Japan. And um, and this is right around the time where I was getting ready to decide like, OK, what what am I going to be doing here? And uh, that was that was maybe more like seven years ago that I, I made the decision. And then right around that time is when uh, Twitch had been bought by Amazon and they released Twitch Prime. And I'm like, OK, this is like this is a good opportunity to, to try and, and go for this full time because, you know, everybody at the time, a lot of people had Amazon Prime. So it was a very easy way for people to subscribe and support the channel for free. So that's that's why I went with uh, with streaming. But yeah, if I didn't decide to go streaming, I probably would have been uh, potentially in Japan uh, teaching English. But, uh, you know, that also I know that sounds like a dream job to a lot of people. But believe me, on the research that I did. That can be kind of rough. Uh, apparently, it's just kind of, most people find it very miserable. The companies that they work for mm, and mm-hmm. uh, the pay and everything. I mean, yeah, it might sound like a dream to live in and teach in Japan, but there's a, there's a lot of horror stories. Not saying I won't ever go there. I, I would definitely love to to go back and uh, you know, even if it's just like a vacation or potentially, you know maybe a year or two long stay to, to do some kind of like English teaching uh, to some capacity. But um, yeah, that's probably the path I would have went down. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'd actually never, never heard that that was a potential plan or opportunity for you. So very cool. And I guess that kind of leads into another question I had too. So I remember many years back, you would travel to Japan as you kind of were alluding to there. You stayed with the host family for several weeks and you also went to India for a, for a school project. So I'd like to believe that you got out to a game store or, or many of them while you were in both places. So what, what, what's like one memorable or highlight game or piece of merchandise that you can fondly look back on that you got in maybe both places? I have to say my time in Japan was kind of like, it, it almost feels like a fever dream. And it, it kind of did while I was there because I, I can't tell you that, you know, th- there are benefits to having knowledge on the prices of games off the top of your head. And when I was in Japan at the time, I had gone there just at the peak prime time to go when Japan hadn't quite, you know, pretty much matched their game prices with U.S. prices to the point where, you know, mo- you know, there were Japanese sellers on eBay that would sell imports on U.S. eBay, but there weren't many. So, you know, going to Japan and going to these mom and pop shops, you would find just incredibly underpriced games. You know, we're talking games that you can buy in Japan for 20 bucks and on U.S. eBay, they're like a hundred plus dollars. Wow. So I pretty much every store that I'd go into, I would just clean up shop in these, in these places, just being like, you know, it was a little tough because reading the spines of the games, I, I could do it like very slowly at the time, but I, I, it was just much faster for me to like pull, pull the game out and look at the covers. So I would just like rapid fire through the shelves, looking at the cover. Okay. No, I don't know that one. Don't know that one. I know this one. Okay. This is like half the price it goes for and pick it up, you know? So uh, I ended up buying so many games that the, the funniest thing for honestly, the, the, the first memory that always stands out to me is having to buy an extra suitcase. Oh my gosh. Um, specifically while I was there and filled it with nothing but games. And then on like the TSA check on the way back home, the security guards were just like looking at the x-ray and laughing. <laughs> <laughs> because when they scanned it, all they would see is just rows and rows of CDs and, and you know, whatever the heck else games I had in there. So, Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I don't regret it now because honestly, that suitcase, it, 
I mean, I, I don't remember exactly what I had in there, but these days it's probably worth five times or more the amount of, of maybe even 10 times the amount of what I paid back then. So it was, it was totally worth it. But yeah, the, the game store is there. Absolutely amazing experience. It's not the same anymore from what I understand, because um, now everything is like pretty much US eBay prices in Japan, unless you're going really off the grid. Um, you know, I did meet up with some some old school YouTubers you might remember X Corn Muffin X. Oh, yeah, Joe. Be, yeah. Yep, Joe. Yep. He used to be very prominent in the retro gaming scene. Now he has other interests in like wrestling and whatnot. But uh, we actually met up on a weekend and he took me around to some stores and sort of like, like I mentioned, off the grid stuff. And that was uh, that was a ton of fun. And um, in India, to touch upon briefly, because I did make a video there about like the gaming scene in India, I did manage to find like a couple of game stores there, but it, it is certainly not what you would be expecting. I mean, they had something there called, uh, what was the name? It was like a very generic game store name that was essentially like an Indian GameStop, uh, like pretty much one for one. You'd walk in there and it felt like you, you were in a GameStop in, in a mall, in an Indian mall. Interesting. And um, they didn't really have any, you know, most newer stuff. And then I found something in like a back alley out in like Bangalore somewhere. Um, just like this, this store that did carry older games and newer games and like other other stuff. It wasn't just games, but it was uh, it was mostly video games. But the funniest thing to me about India is I specifically, when I was there, I'm like, there were a couple of PlayStation 2 games that were made exclusively in India. And I'm like, oh, I'm totally going to find these games when I go there. No, I didn't find a single one. I was looking for, there was this game called Hanuman Boy Warrior. And uh, I couldn't, none of the stores had it there. And where do I end up finding this game? In a at a convention in the United States in like some bargain bin, brand new sealed for like 20 bucks is how That's I ended up wild. finding it eventually. Yeah. What, what type of game was that? Is that like a platformer or is it some type of action game? Super janky God of War ripoff style oh, game with like okay. an uh, Indian boy prince. Uh, it's sort of like, if I remember it, kind of slightly based off of uh, Journey to the West, of course, you know, one of those styles of games, but it's more like Indian mythology. Um, it's, it's been a bit since I actually streamed it like six years ago. I, I plan on streaming it again because, uh, a lot of people didn't get to see it and I didn't archive the stream. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. Well, I guess staying on the traveling line of thought, is there anyone else, anywhere else outside of Japan, India, anywhere else you've traveled in the world that you would consider, I guess, a bucket list for you, whether it's, they have an interesting gaming scene there or just, you know, a bucket list place you'd like to go. Really? I'd like these days. I, I mostly want to visit a lot of, um, conventions around the united states when they start popping back up again but in terms of where i'd like to go next um i've always said that i've, I've wanted to go to like ireland or, or something mm. like that or maybe even alaska i feel like would be a pretty nice trip but oh, yeah. there's nothing like there's nothing crazy immediate that i'm like okay i have to I have to go to this place i'm more but when i go on vacations these days I'm more about like the sightseeing. I don't want to be cooped up in a city hunting games, which is what people probably think that I want to be doing. But if I'm going on like a real vacation, I want it to be something that's like outdoors and looking at, uh, you know, touching grass for the first time in like, you know, months, maybe I've been playing some MMO. I want, I want to get out there yeah. and see the world, you know? So no, I can, I can definitely I book a vacation. It'll be outdoors. <laughs> well, I can definitely relate and I can attest for Alaska. My family and I went on a, Alaskan cruise about well, it was just before the pandemic the summer before everything kind of you know went crazy um and we were on a 10-day Alaskan cruise we um 
we hit the the capital of Alaska, a number of porting city, port cities, really, really great place to or great state to visit. And if you're looking for a place like for sightseeing and just getting outdoors, beautiful like mountainsides and you know glaciers and all kinds of stuff like that, Alaska is definitely a place you want to uh, end up traveling to in the future. I mean, and being the Lord of the Rings fan that I am, I guess I also should add like New Zealand oh, yeah. onto that list would be that. That's probably that would probably be my number one to be honest. They they yeah. do like little tours and stuff too around the filming locations that they use. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, no, uh, New Zealand's definitely high my bucket list as well for sure. And actually, um, news to the listeners, but my wife is actually for work traveling to the Netherlands here uh, in a week. And on the back half of her work trip, I'm going to meet her in Ireland for three days. So uh, I've never been to Europe, but I'm really excited to go to Ireland and uh, yeah, just see the countrysides and hop into a pub and just meet locals, get some of the local food and everything like that should be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, especially just even just the the like you see the films of Lord of the Rings and you're like wow that just looks like a place I can get lost in and just you know lay on the grass and just kind of zone out for an entire evening kind of place perfect perfect vacation spot for sure and it just seems so pure and clean too so that should be interesting but all that aside let's kind of bring things back to video games a little bit here so I'm just curious you know you've you've stated a couple times on on your streams that it's rare for you to be playing games off stream you tend to play games that you know, I wouldn't say are short by any stretch of the imagination, but you games you can kind of beat in two or three streams or, or less. Does part of you miss playing those obscure JRPGs, dungeon crawlers, games you used to get on the DS and, and PSP and, and stuff like that? Or are you kind of just like, ah, time and place for that, you know, when I was a little bit younger, but now I'm kind of focused on the more the more shorter experiences? I mean, it is kind of unfortunate that, that I do have to kind of like shove aside certain genres such as like the longer dungeon crawlers which i used to be really be into because sadly the way that twitch works unless your stream is entirely focused on that type of genre where your viewers kind of watch you for those types of games it's a little hard to go from streaming variety and being like all right guys um we're going to be streaming this like 80 hour repetitive dungeon crawler for the next couple weeks or more yeah <laughs> it's just unfortunately it just doesn't work content wise and you know the, the, the viewership, as much as people will tell you, oh, we'll watch you for anything, most people do actually care about what you're streaming. And uh, unfortunately, when you stream full time, you have to take that into account. So like if your viewer numbers are dipping really low, you, you got to be mindful of that. So unfortunately, longer RPGs, I just can't stick with them much. But, you know, I will sneak in RPGs here and there, even if I can't end up finishing them, usually for me. Just having a few streams where we can kind of just sit back and discuss the the history of the game and memories of the game. And, uh, you know, what we think of it now, usually that wets my whistle, I guess you can say, uh, and, and kind of can give me a similar experience because mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest, I couldn't imagine myself playing these types of games off stream. It feels hollow. It's, it's a, it's a strange feeling where it's hard for me to play single player story-based games off stream, uh, because I, I always, I'm so used to just sitting there talking to people while I play games now. So if I'm just doing it alone, it's, it's kind of weird. Um, but a, a very strange and different approach that I've taken to some of these games lately is I do what I call a, a casual speedrun. Now, while my speedrunning stuff has taken sort of like a, a bit of a backseat in the past couple of years, um, I'm not opposed to doing this. And what I mean by casual speedrun, I did this for Final Fantasy X. 
where I'd always neglected Final Fantasy X uh, because when I first played it, I wasn't the biggest fan. The transition from 9 to 10 was a bit drastic for me. I didn't like how linear 10 was. And, you know, first of all, one thing I want to mention, all the people that complain about how linear 13 is apparently haven't played Final Fantasy X. Yeah. Because that game is just as linear. I was going to say, so I one quick thing I'll, I'll interject here. So I've never played Final Fantasy X beyond the first five or six hours. I've started it at least three to four different times. I more recently started it back in like January or February of this year. Made it the furthest I've ever gotten, you know, about five, six, seven hours in. And never once did I get into an area that was beyond the corridors the size of those first 10 chapters of, of Final Fantasy 13, which I personally love. And we could do an entire episode around that. But like, I'm with you. The out the outpouring of, of hatred towards Final Fantasy 13 shortly after its release about being linear... It, just makes no sense to me coming away from or off the heels of stuff like 10. I just feel like because 10 at least was still a traditional RPG and 13 did make some huge changes to the combat system and especially the the fact that it pretty much lacks towns at all and at least 10 had uh, 10 had some semblances of traditional towns. I think that's why there's so much animosity towards 13 but but anyway not to, not to veer too much off topic here. Um so what I did for 10 was I I wanted to revisit it and try and appreciate it a bit more because at the time I was, for some reason, very obsessed with watching speedruns of this game, other people doing speedruns, and I said, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow the speedrun notes that are out there for this game, and I'm just going to play through it using the speedrun route while not skipping any cutscenes and enjoying the story um, and make it past where I had originally made it to when I first tried playing the game. So that's how I made it through Final Fantasy X. As strange as that sounds is, you know, exploiting and break at the time you would break the game with Riku and she'd kind of just completely destroy the game with her mixing. Um, and I was able to get to the end of the game. And now, as it turns out, I have a huge appreciation for Ten and its story and characters because of uh, that method that I used. And I, I would like to do this for other RPGs that I just feel like I would stand no chance in heck of ever finishing anytime soon um, that, you know, these gargantuan 50, 60 plus hour RPGs that I want to experience the story of and maybe also learn the speed run. It's a thing I'm exploring for some, some stuff. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, even for someone like myself that really hasn't gotten deep into the streaming scene, I, I have a somewhat long history of playing JRPGs and, and I love them. Kingdom Hearts being probably my favorite game of all time, even to this day, but like even when Dragon Quest Eleven, this was probably the first instance where I was like, I just can't sit down and play a game like this for like if I know a game is going to take me 80 plus hours, it's such a daunting task. And it's interesting for me because I, I say that and then I can turn around and play something like Elden Ring far more easily or the next Elder Scrolls far more easily for 80 to 100 hours. But a traditional JRPG, it's difficult for me to play for 50 plus hours and the more recent example of that would be xenoblade chronicles definitive edition where i was playing on the easiest difficulty i got about 50 to 60 hours into it and i just hit this wall with a boss and it required me to kind of go back and grind and do a bunch of quests that i just at that point didn't have the patience to do because i was kind of at a point like mentally where i'm like i've really had such a strong connection to this game really enjoyed it up to this point i'm ready to roll credits and kind of just beat the final boss but then i get to this boss that just kicks my ass and i'm like ah, i guess this is kind of where i'm just going to part ways with xenoblade chronicles and just enjoy the experience i had up until that point yeah i see what you're saying actually the that xenoblade series um man it was 
you know, I tried, I tried the second one and it was just too overwhelming for me. It was just the menus and the amount of text in that game and all the different mechanics. Like I, it's harder and harder for me now to get into RPGs that are, they feel like an MMO. And that game to me almost felt like an MMO. I, I prefer my RPGs so much more streamlined and simple. And a lot of the stuff that comes out these days, boy, I, I just look at the menus and I'm, I'm immediately overwhelmed with uh, just crazy mechanics and learning curves and that's why if I play an RPG, it's probably going to be something like PS3, 360, and older. Because right around there is where they started, after that, they started making a shift to the more complicated and longer form stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, next question I have for you. I think many can probably relate, and I, I think you're certainly one of these people. Shortly after the Xbox 360 released, you were very big into the achievement hunting scene. You know, buying games, going out of your way. Playing stuff like Avatar and Peter Jackson's King Kong, which Peter Jackson's King Kong is actually a great game, but you still get those that thousand gamer score for beating it. I, I also get the impression, certainly from your streams, that you're not much into the achievement collecting or certainly PlayStation trophy collecting scene anymore. I myself would consider, you know, kind of a trophy enthusiast. I kind of go out of my way to get the uh, the platinum and lady in a leotard with a gun and some of that other nonsense that you've uh, caused me to buy over the years. But I'm curious, staying on the achievement side of things, do you remember a point where you were just like, I'm fed up with this, I, I just need to play games to enjoy the games? Yeah, there was a specific breaking point, which was one of the Burger King games. So it was Big Bumpin'. Some people might remember Sneak King, Pocket oh, Bike Racer, yeah. Big Bumpin'. So prior to Big Bumpin', I, I was very into achievements. I actually don't regret any of my time hunting achievements because it was genuinely fun when when you got a 360 at launch and everybody started on an even playing field you know it meant something to have a high achievement score because you knew that you know hey just a few months ago uh, everybody had zero gamer score so it was this way to sort of like one up your friends and you know with with my online presence people would check my gamer score and you know they'd be like wow look at how many games he's played and look at what he what score he has in this so it was like there was there was a fun drive to get your achievement uh, achievement scores up but eventually it just started wearing on me and uh, some of the harder games we had to get achievements, you'd have to actually schedule online play sessions with people because a lot of developers were starting to lock achievements behind like things you had to do online. And one of those games was Big Bumpin', which people might remember is like that you'd, you'd drive around in bumper cars and you'd have to like knock things into goals <laughs> and whatnot. It's just a simple little game. I, I Very vague memories of it at this point. Oh, yeah. But one of the achievements was something like, oh, score 100 goals or something like that. So what I had to do, obviously nobody was playing that game online because it said score 100 goals online in, in an online play session, something to the equivalent. So I had to go on some like achievement hunting website, find a few other people that needed to get this done. And then we just had to sit there trading goals over and over and over. But the thing about that game is it wasn't super easy to score goals from what I remember. So it was like this really tedious long session i think it i think i was doing it for like an hour and a half two hours and i don't even think i had the achievement at that point and i'm gonna be honest i don't remember if i just abandoned the achievement or if i eventually got it and said this is the final straw i'm done but that was that was the the breaking point and uh i think that's the last game i played where i actually tried to to hunt achievements wow yeah no i i can certainly relate as someone who still to this day is really into the PlayStation trophy hunting scene and and I got to kind of keep myself honest too because oftentimes like I'll be more focused on the trophy list than I am the game and just playing and enjoying the story itself like the last thing I want to do is look up the trophy list first for something like The Last of Us Part 2 
and be more focused on the collectibles than actually just allowing the story to play out as the developers kind of intended, right? And so that's, that's a very interesting take that I actually never thought about, like being so into trophies that you kind of let it get in your way of the casual experience. Because like, if you see something where it's like, oh, find this hidden thing in this level, that's all you're going to be thinking about is searching for that hidden thing as you're playing through a certain level. So. I never thought about it like that. Oh, exactly. Yeah, no, it's it's a real like problem. I mean, for me and I think other people too, like once you kind of go down that path of like making sure that you try and get every trophy. And of course, nowadays there's games where there's missable trophies. So if you do something in a level or you get over the hump of a certain chapter in a game and, you know, I guess the more recent example that I'll kind of walk you through is Mar- Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy that came out recently. So I was following a guide for all the collectibles in that game. And this was kind of the final, not the final straw for me, but certainly something that just was like, all right, I'm fucking done with this. I'm just going to play the game and just enjoy it beginning to end and not worry about collectibles anymore. But it was like chapter four or five. And there's like, I don't know, 13, 15, 16 chapters in the game. Chapter four, I was kind of going on my merry way. I had a guide up. I was looking at the photograph. So when I came up to a certain point, I knew I had to get this particular item behind this box. Well, I had scrolled down the page too much and I missed one of the collectibles that I needed to get. So I get to the end of the chapter and I thought like, okay, let me just double check to see if I got everything. And I was like, oh wait, no, I missed that one item. And I was like, well, thankfully Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy has chapter replay so I can just go back and get it, right? Well, no. So Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy has some type of thing where even if you go back and start a chapter, you basically lose all the collectibles up to that point. So even if you collect or recollect all of the collectibles in that chapter it doesn't count towards your total moving into the next chapter and so i was like you know what this is ridiculous this is completely disrupting my enjoyment from the experience i gotta stop this i mean not only that but just like the thought of playing through a story-based game like that having to have you know a window open essentially with screenshots spoiling what's about to appear next in the game for you like i don't know that to me seems very distracting and I could totally see giving up that, at least that method for for trophy hunting, because that would ruin the immersion, honestly, for me, if I was having to do something like that. But I, I totally understand the addiction, because what you're describing is once you kind of go down that rabbit hole, it's kind of hard to play a game uh, the same way ever again, which is the same thing with me and speedrunning, where, you know, maybe not so much these days, but it's, I will tell you, it's really hard for me to pick up a platformer these days and not immediately just run into a corner and start jumping at a wall trying to break out of bounds. <laughs> yeah. And if you ever see me if you ever see me play a game where I'm not immediately trying to glitch the game, that means I have a lot of respect for the game. <laughs> and I, I don't want to like ruin my experience. So it, it goes both ways with uh with speedrunning, trophy hunting, and I totally get it. It's like once you once you start, it's really it's hard for me, even not just platformers, but like any game in general now, the first thing I start thinking about is how how good of a speed run would this be? But it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's more of like, how can I find ways to get more enjoyment and more time out of these games? Yeah. In other words, like, hey, once I beat this game, what are the chances that I want to keep playing it over and over? Um, but yeah, we won't go down the speed run rabbit hole because that's a that's a whole other monster. Yeah, but no, I mean, I think the analogy is perfect. I mean, it's very similar to, I, I would even consider it almost an addiction to trophies because it's like at a certain point, you, you just got to let it go, you know, just play the game for what it is. And uh, that's kind of where I've gotten to. And as we'll get into here shortly, even playing or getting a Series X, that's kind of like almost reset my brain because I, I don't really care about achievements, which is such a weird thing to say, because like, how can I care about trophies but not care about achievements? I don't know if it's because when you get all the achievements, you don't necessarily get a platinum trophy, so to speak. 
Um, but yeah, so like just getting the Series X is kind of almost like reset my brain so that when I hopefully go back to the PlayStation, it's like, all right, let's just let's just play, uh, you know, the next Ratchet and Clank game, not really be concerned about, you know, getting every trophy in the game right away. So, well, the thing that bothers me the most about platinum trophies is that they make games now that are like 50 cents or a dollar that are made specifically just to give you a platinum trophy. And there's like droves of people out there that obsess over these games. So they're spending hundreds of dollars on these terrible, terrible games. I mean, there are games where you just buy it for like a dollar and then you just sit there mashing the X button and you'll get you'll get a platinum trophy. Oh, they make games like that now. And it's like to me, it's like it just devalues any work that you build up making like a platinum trophy collection because if you start littering your collection with games like that people aren't going to take your actual real good platinum trophies very seriously 100 percent, and i'm actually totally um guilty of, of buying into that when i first got the playstation 4 back in it was around the same time i started um watching you on twitch like 2017 2018 when i got the ps4 i totally bought that jank ass my name is mayo game where you literally just click a mayo jar like 25,000 times so not only are like you instilling carpal tunnel into your wrist but you're breaking a, your controller potentially by clicking that many times simultaneously and what do you have to show for other than a platinum trophy at the end of the day it's crazy ridiculous and now they're a dime a dozen people these these people are making these games now like like crazy because you know they know the trophy hunters want them and Man, I just wish those people luck, though, people that are addicted to trophies for, for that kind of stuff. I mean, if they're into it, not you know, not a problem. People are, they could be into whatever the heck they want. But man, that seems like it's a hard addiction to break because then it's like once you break that addiction, you're like, wow, just they, they feel like they're probably in so deep. Like, why stop now? They've invested all this time in these these crazy trophies. Why Why stop? Just keep going kind of thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. So Anyways, we could talk about trophy hunting all day long. I guess the last question I have for you, um, do you think it's worth at this point for Nintendo to implement some type of universal trophy or achievement system? I doubt that they ever will at this point, but do you think it would be worth it for them to do so? I think they would save something like that for their next console. Now, I was really, really hoping when the Switch was announced that they would have actually had some kind of trophy achievement thing, because I said... If, if there's something to get me back into trophies and achievements, it, it would have been something like that introduced with the Switch because the, one of the main reasons that I don't get into trophies or achievements is because I feel like I'm too far behind. Everybody's got crazy trophy lists, crazy achievement lists and, and gamer scores. But if you start on equal footing with other people, then it feels more meaningful to try and build it up. And Nintendo didn't implement that. And I really feel like it's a disservice because I, I guess they just aren't aware that People will buy more games, especially digital games, if it means that they can get get some kind of like, I don't know, maybe they call them Nintendo points or something like that. Yeah. And knowing Nintendo, they the reason why I feel like it wasn't done is because Nintendo, I, I don't think they want to feel like they're copying. They always want to innovate. So I think if they ever come out with some kind of achievement thing, it's going to be a bit more innovative than just like, hey, here's our version of trophies and achievements. I think it's going to be tied to... Um, something else that just makes it a give it a little bit more oomph when it comes to innovating that that style of uh trophies and achievements yeah yeah i'm hoping they do i mean even like in xenoblade chronicles definitive edition like some of their games have individual like built-in trophies or achievements or milestones but when i say like universal like yeah i mean just to have your nintendo avatar next to it have some type of emblem um kind of similar to you like with 
With Twitch, you have a doorknob. And so for the number of months or years that people have been subscribed to your Twitch channel, imagine your Nintendo avatar or some type of emblem that like continued to grow or change colors or something that showed the progress that you've made in accumulating Nintendo points or, you know, stars or coins or whatever it might be if they implemented something like that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I think they underestimate the value of something like that. I'll just I'll just say I think it's too late for them to do it now, but whatever their next console ends up being or platform, who knows what Nintendo's doing? You never know. I mean, for if they can make the Labo, who knows what the heck they're cooking <laughs> these days? You know, it's, who knows? But uh, yeah, maybe in the next generation for them, we'll, we'll see what they got. That's very true. Well, I have a lot of other questions here, but I didn't even anticipate us to talk for 36 minutes at this point. So what do you say we get into the games that we have been playing recently, Pete, instead? I'll save those questions. I'll pocket them for the, maybe the next time you're on the show. 130 episodes from now, we'll get you back on and I'll kind of pick your brain about some of this other stuff. What the heck have you been playing the past couple of weeks uh, on Twitch? Any any standout or highlight titles you wanted to talk about? So most recently, um, I played... I, I've sort of been on a, hey, let's play games that people hate and see how good they are kick so oh, i just yeah. played mega man x7 which uh, i don't know how familiar you are with the mega man series if at all but very unfamiliar experience very unfamiliar very little yeah yep mm-hmm. that's kind of how i am uh my history with mega man has pretty much just been like playing mega man 4 i believe it was or 2 on my game boy uh original game boy i played mega man x on super nintendo like 20 years ago and Mega Man 7 on Super Nintendo about 20 years ago as well. And that had pretty much been my my experience with the series. Uh, oh, and 6 on the NES. So pretty much nothing. I hadn't touched the series in like two decades. And uh, I just felt like revisiting or not revisiting, but playing one of the apparently worst games, what many people consider to be the worst game in the entire Mega Man series. And you know how many Mega Man games there are. So oh, yeah. Not including spinoffs. Um so I tried Mega Man X7, which came out on the PlayStation 2 back in 2000 and... Well, I don't remember the year, but it was it was a PlayStation 2 game. And then it would also uh, be followed up by Mega Man X8. And uh, this game was hated by pretty much universally the entire fan base. So I figured I'd check it out. And I found it to be uh, pretty okay. It's one of those games where you feel like it would be sort of called a hidden gem if it wasn't called Mega Man. Really? Okay. You, you know, yeah. You know, you know how those fan bases always have expectations for certain games. So the fact that this is a part of the Mega Man series um, and changed things drastically, because prior to this, Mega Man games, Mega Man X6 most recently had been, you know, a traditional side-scrolling Mega Man game. Nothing, nothing crazy. But X7 made a transition to 3D, and uh, not only was it 3D, but it had cell shading. It had um, like really, really terrible voice acting that. Uh, no game had done this to me in, in a very long time that I can remember, but the the voice acting was actually so bad in this game in one particular section that I actually had to, to stop the game and give myself a couple minutes to recover because I was laughing and crying. Really? The voice acting. Yeah. In your it, most recent stream? Was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I gotta check this out. Yeah, there's, there's a clip of it. But uh, yeah, the voice acting just was... That just tells you something. It's so, so awful. But it made it such a fun experience for me. So I went into it like very, I, I called it unbiased because I had no expectations, not really being a Mega Man fan. And I came away somewhat impressed by it. Like there's, <laughs> there's a lot of issues with this game. Uh, I praise. It was also really fun. Yeah. And I'd say for you, if you're unfamiliar with the Mega Man series, um, the sale just ended, but 
the X collection was just on sale for 10 bucks. That came with X8, 7, uh, 6, and 5 for $10. And uh, I'd say this is a good one to start with if you've never played the Mega Man X games in particular. Because it, it kind of plays like a good old janky PS2 action platformer. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Is it more of like a platform run-and-gun type of shooter thing? Yeah, so it, it does have a lot of sort of run-and-gun, but it does have a lot of platforming. And it has 2D sections, 3D sections. The engine itself is 3D, so it's cel-shaded 3D engine. And uh, just to give you an idea, like the main character, X, that is normally in you know, not normally, he's always in every Mega Man game. He's essentially like a side character that you unlock towards the end of the game and you, you pretty much never touch him. So like most of the characters, you don't even have to have any familiarity with the series. Um, it's kind of just a, a fun ride for five or six hours with terrible, terrible English voice acting. But it's one of those so bad it's good. Like you have to experience the voice acting in this game. Go on blind, I would say. Don't don't spoil it too much. Um, my, my clip probably wouldn't spoil everything, but... Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it, but it it just, you know, that's what I like doing for for these games that just get completely crapped on by a fan base and I'm like, "All right, let's let's find out if it's really that bad." And in some instances, yeah, this game warrants some of the hate that it gets for some of its gameplay, but um yeah, I took a chance and, and really had some fun with it. Well, I think that's what I probably appreciate most about your stream speed is in really just over the course of the years, even dating back to YouTube is if a game gets panned and critically just received horribly, you're going to be the first person to either stream that game, buy and review it, or just be the first one on YouTube or Twitch to kind of talk about it. You know, last year, no one can forget Balian Wonderworld and all the critical reception that game got, which was, um, I mean, it was just made out to be a meme, which is obviously very unfortunate with Yuji Naka and, you know, his, his future in game development remains to be seen. But I was also one of the very few that bought that game day one on PS5 and uh, while I think the game overstayed its welcome, I certainly enjoyed my time with it. Those earlier levels, so colorful, really charming music, and, and just a charming game overall. One of the most tragic games, to tr- like gaming stories in terms of games development, I think, in the history of games. I, I really feel like that game, while, yeah, it has a lot of mechanical issues, the, the costume swapping and like the way that you collect costumes is, is certainly one of the worst aspects. But that game was just like so undeservably bashed to the point where Yuji Naka pretty much just said, I- I'm, I'm not making games anymore. I mean, he is kind of like getting back into like indie stuff, solo developing. But I mean, just to, to the point where Yuji Naka, a legend in, in gaming history, would be pushed out of wanting to make games anymore because of how poorly that game was received. It's just, it's such a tragic story, and I don't think that game was uh, was nearly deserving of all the, the hate that it got. So that's sort of why, you know, I go on a mission to, these days, honestly, if a game starts getting crapped on really bad, it just makes me more excited to play it. Because I'm like, I need to find out why people are so critical of this game. I mean, there's got to be more to it than 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 what's, you know, being laid out there in, in reviews and, like, because these days you can't even trust Metacritic. People review bomb without even having played the game, so you got to take that stuff with a grain of salt. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm the first to, um, you know, whenever you talk about anything resembling a 3D platformer, uh, I'm the first one to, to buy it. And, you know, more recently, I would say in the past year or so, I'm actually building out a, you know, rusty R.A. Lewis 2011 uh, 3D platformer recommendation sheet, because as you said many times, the 3D platforming genre is not what it used to be, certainly unlike the PS2, GameCube, um, Xbox Air, where they were a dime a dozen, the licensed platformers and even the Vexes and um, you know, attacking the power of Juju's of the world. There's there's so many games out there, um, hidden gems, if you will. 
like more recently, I last year, actually, one of my top 10 games of the year was Tamarin, which I think you didn't make it all the way through, um, which very cumbersome game design. The sense of direction is, I think, what most people will put that game down because it's just royally frustrating to know where the next place you're supposed to go is but that's a more recent highlight for me that has i think like a 30 on metacritic or something like that just reviewed yeah. horribly and i mean david wise composed the soundtrack chameleon games a small indie studio uh meant to be kind of a spiritual successor to kind of the cult classic jet force gemini on the n64 uh there's no way we're ever going to see tamarin 2 but my gosh, did I have such a fun time with that little game? It's just, it's such a shame what the internet can do to a smaller studio or, or even a lot, a lot bigger studio or someone like Yuji Naka's name tied to a game, how the internet's response to something can be um, so condemning for a person or studio nowadays. It's, it's very frustrating and upsetting. Yeah, Tamarin for me, uh, that game was amazing. The first two or three hours, I'm like, what? How does this game have such a low review? I was just enamored with the game. The environments were beautiful. I had such a fun time exploring. But then, yeah, it started to wear on me a bit, like you mentioned. Very hard to navigate. Things start to feel a little repetitive in terms of the environments. And the shooting sections, for me, were a little hit or miss. But, uh, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed that game. It had, For me, it had a lot of promise. Um, but it, it probably wasn't deserving of, like, a 3 out of 10. That's That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. What else you been playing? I, I know you, um, I don't know if you want to get into this, but Babylon's Fault, speaking of games that are critically not reviewed very well, I think you've been playing that recently as well. Yeah, so that was one where it came out at a terrible time. That game came out like right as Elden Ring had came out. So I, I had a passing interest in it, but obviously it was kind of trumped by Elden Ring as it was for everybody else. And out of nowhere, I just decided after I had kind of finished up on what I was doing with Elden Ring, um, I'm like, you know what, let's try the demo, because I, I do have this fear of missing out, and uh, I, I didn't want to miss my opportunity to play Babylon's Fall, because a lot of my fondest memories over the years are playing games that you can no longer play anymore, games that have such an integral online experience, or games that you can only play online, and then once that ability goes away, that's it, You're, it's over, you can't play it anymore, and then it's like, well, you never got to experience it, so, oh well. So I'm like, you know what? I need to try this game, let's try the demo, and just see what all the fuss is about, because this game, people were calling it the worst PlayStation 5 game yet, worse than Battle and Wonderworld, so I'm like, okay, game that's worse than Battle and Wonderworld, maybe I'll really like it. You know, I take that as a calling card. Yeah. <laughs> you call yeah. a game worse than Battle and Wonderworld, I'll be there um, to, to check it out. So, my first time trying the demo, it, it was a good sampling of what the game had to offer. I felt sort of like the bread trail of where the game was leading you and, and what was to come in terms of the gameplay loop. You know, it's essentially, it's it's a hub town online multiplayer game. So if you ever played something like Monster Hunter, where, you know, you, you gather in a hub, you you go out on some quests, you kill some monsters, you get some loot. You know, you, you in this case, you don't get loot exclusively. You do get materials and you, you craft a lot of the stuff that you, you eventually start wearing. Um, but the, the main thing is people were hating on this game for a lot of different reasons. It was... First of all, it's a, it's a game that has a free-to-play structure with a battle pass and everything like that, but it's a $60, $70 full-price game. Now, because I waited a few weeks to play it, I was actually able to go on eBay and get it for close to half price. So I felt a little bit better. So people hate it on this game because it's not just, you know, buy the game and you get everything. It does have a, 
Battle Pass, which is like almost a nail in the coffin for a game these days if you launch a game like that. But on top of that, the game had really different art direction. So it goes for sort of like this hand-painted look that doesn't quite work. And apparently in early playtesting, the game went even heavier on this this hand-painted look. But the critical reception was so poor that they they toned it down. And one of my complaints was I feel like it was toned down too much and they, they needed to go harder on this paintbrush look that apparently it used to look like, but it no longer does because apparently people just didn't like the way it looked. Interesting. And then the the thing that people hate the absolute most is the gr- in the graphics... I honestly thought it was hilarious. I thought it actually kind of added to the game at some after a while because it was just so bad. But the in-game character models look like they're like straight off of a PlayStation 2. Oh my! The hair physics, the hair physics are like what were they thinking? The hair is like literally dancing and shaking and shivering and <laughs> convulsing on the characters' heads in cutscenes. Oh my gosh! So for me, it's one of those things where like you either make a game that's like really good hair physics for an example like this or just graphics in general i hate a game with mediocre graphics they either need to be really bad so you laugh at them or really good so you marvel at them yeah unfortunately babylon's fall kind of falls in the middle they're not bad enough where you laugh at them except for the hair and they're definitely not good enough where you're sitting there marveling at them the whole time so yeah i would i would definitely agree with the critical reception about this game's graphics they are for me it doesn't bother me because if you know, I play PlayStation 3, 360 games still, and that's kind of what this game looks like. It looks like a good-looking PlayStation 3 game with some pretty nice particle effects. So if, you, if you're if you going into this expecting some next-gen-looking game, you're going to be disappointed. But essentially, to cut to the chase here and, and wrap up Babylon's Fall and what I'm thinking about it, um, the game was good enough where I played it off-stream, actually. I was kind of getting into it a, enough to be like, hey, let's, you know, with my morning cup of coffee, let's throw this thing on my iPad and remote play and play a few missions the worst part is though the game is straight up dead it is so dead there's so few people playing this game that already it's really really hard to match with other people and get missions done wow yeah so you can't so then you cannot play this game solo by yourself you need other people online to play and progress missions i mean you can play solo but the thing is this is not a game that's made to be played solo uh, you know, if you play a Monster Hunter game solo, as you know, something or White Knight Chronicles, if any anybody remembers White Knight Chronicles. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah you can you can play those games solo, but man, you're going to be miserable because don't forget these missions are designed to be progressively harder and done as group content. And it's just you, you don't have anybody to sh- show your cool gear off to. I mean, these games are designed because this is an online game only. You can't you have to actually sign up with Square Enix's account. And you have to always be online to play it. So. Yeah, you can solo through stuff, but honestly, it feels bad. I, I've gone through some missions solo, and I just don't really enjoy it. I much enjoy the chaos playing with other random people, and unfortunately, this game is just so dead. And one of the reasons is because, yes, it is cross-play, meaning like if I'm playing on a PS4, I can play with people on PS5 and, and PC and whatnot, but it's not region cross-play, so that means it's broken up like U.S. people only play with U.S. people, people in oh, Europe only no. play with people in Europe. Japan only plays with people in Japan, and as you can imagine, a game that's pretty dead already, that further makes the player base feel even smaller. So there's still a chance if you want to experience Babylon's Fall, there is a demo now on Steam and PlayStation 4 and 5. It'll give you about five or six hours worth of playtime to get a feel for it. Um, I will say the one thing that drives me through this game is the combat, and that's another thing that people hated about it, is uh, they 
because it is developed by Platinum Games, everybody expects like Bayonetta levels or near levels of uh, sort of combat. And you don't get that here, at least not until like the very end game after you've invested 50 plus hours in this game. Um, because you essentially equip four weapons. So two weapons are normal weapons mapped to square and triangle, and then two weapons are spectral weapons that are mapped to left trigger and right trigger. And the idea is that while you're doing your normal combos with square and triangle, so say you equip a sword to your square and a hammer or something to your triangle, and you're alternating between those, you're also simultaneously doing combos with your spectral weapons on your shoulder buttons. So it's sort of like this dual uh, <laughs> thing that you have to be thinking about all the time in your head, like essentially doing two different sets of weapon combos at the same time, which has some really cool setups and things that you can do with it. And it really does feel pretty badass when you pull off some of these combos. And that is the single thing that really helps drive me through what I played of the game. And I, I am still like semi playing it, at least off stream. I've probably got about 70 hours in the game at this point. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So I don't, I haven't played it in the past few days. There's like a near uh, collaboration going on right now that ends at the end of the month. So I've kind of like been dipping into that. Um, but I will say like, there's still time. If you want to experience Babylon's fall, see what all the fuss is about. Try the demo while you still can, because I hate to say it, even though they're touting like, Hey, we got the next three like season passes lined up of content. I think the player base will just be dried up at that point. By the time the second season is even here. Um, the only thing that will save this game, it needs to go free to play. Straight up needs to be a free to play game. Make it free and, you know, just sell the cosmetics and stuff that they have in the game. That will save it and that will revive the player base. Well, one question I have. So my brother-in-law is a Monster Hunter super fan. Monster Hunter World is literally his favorite game of all time. He's played it for like well over 500 hours. He's working on the Platinum now. Uh, he's played Monster Hunter Rise and Stories, and he's kind of going back and kind of experiencing more of the library because he never played like Monster Hunter Try or, you know, Ultimate on PSP or anything like that. My question is, is it something you can play? Like, can you create a room and like the three of us, like you, me and Ryan could play in a room or do you have to be randomly matched up with other people? No, you can definitely create a, a private room and, and play like that. And that's probably the best way to experience it, because trying to queue up with random people is really difficult because you know, especially if you're doing story missions, um, you let's say you're in the middle of a story mission and there's like a 10 minute cutscene before the boss, the random person that joins with you is going to have to sit there and watch that 10 minute cutscene. And if you beat the boss and there's another 10 minute cutscene, that random person is also going to have to sit there and watch that cutscene. So if they've gone through the story already, they're not going to want to watch it. So the way you described is actually the preferred way of doing it. But the one thing I'll mention, I don't think a hardcore Monster Hunter fan uh, will like this game because... Monster Hunter is such a refined experience and, you know, it's, you feel that really nice sense of progression with the gear that you're working towards and equipping. The problem with Babylon's Fall, now I haven't played Destiny, but a lot of people compare it to Destiny. Um, you're kind of meant to always be swapping gear to increase your gear level. So when you find, say, a piece of body armor, it'll be rated like, hey, this is 53 power. And then the, you'll do the next mission, you'll get another body piece that's 55 power. You, even though the body armor you have that's 53 looks really cool and has some good stats, the, the main goal is to always be equipping higher power level armor. So like until much later in the game, you're just constantly swapping gear. Even if you don't like the way it looks or what the stats are, the main goal is just to increase the power level. So people that really meticulously work to craft like crazy weapons and armor and like Monster Hunter may have a hard time adapting to Babylon's Fall. 
CP, you shouldn't have gone there because I can actually hear Ryan crying in his apartment many miles away that you actually had to go that length to describe that it's less about that gear and, 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 you know, working towards that piece of armor because that's literally like his addiction. If mine's PlayStation trophies, his is playing RuneScape for like a thousand hours to get that one cape or grinding for hours and hours in Monster Hunter to get that new piece of armor that he can craft. So, well. Let me let me just clarify one thing. The, that element is there, but the problem is it's pretty much not a factor until you're in the post game. And we're talking like I'm I'm just getting there now. And I said I'm like 70 hours into the game where eventually you want to start trying to craft and grind gear drops that have beneficial uh, enchantments. So essentially like your your gear drops, it'll be like, hey, if you hit an enemy this amount of times, you'll get a percentage of HP back or something like that. But then gear will come with detrimental enhancements and beneficial, and then like the the grind becomes getting the perfect piece of gear. So it eventually does go to that like making the perfect uh, sort of like build of your armor and weapons. But you gotta you gotta endure in order to get there. Okay, well I'll tell you what I, I'm actually sold. I do want to play this with Ryan because I'd like to kind of subsequent to you kind of talking it up and sharing your experience. I'd love for Ryan and I to at least download the demo at the very least and play through some of it co-op because I don't know, I still feel like it's something that he would like and me kind of being having an elementary experience with Monster Hunter, I've only played World for like five or six hours and it didn't really grab me. I don't know. I, I want to at least try the demo and see what I think. Yeah, and just once again, like I, I make loose comparisons to Monster Hunter, mostly because it's a hub world-based game where you, there's a signboard and you go out and do missions with other players. The, the fundamental game uh, won't really feel exactly like Monster Hunter. People that like that mindset of those style of games might might find something to enjoy. And yeah, totally play the demo. You can easily set up a room and, and play through the story together, which is really nice about the, the demo. It's essentially the full game. It's just that they'll eventually lock your, your progress and... Uh, I will say it takes a while for that game to get going, but you can at least dip your toes in and try it out. Yeah, absolutely. No, we will definitely do that. I'll report back in one of your streams and let you know what we think. But uh, what else? Anything else you've been playing the past couple weeks? So I'll quickly, I won't spend too much time on these these next couple, but um, I also did, you know, it's been a little bit since I've played it because this game like physically maimed me for, uh, I had to recover from this game for a few weeks actually, but I was grinding the heck out of chocobo racing on the switch and uh i played it so much that my thumb i actually like lost the nerve feeling in it and it was numb for weeks (laughs) really whoa yeah i finally recovered so so i need to know about this game because obviously this is one you created a youtube video about it similar to babylon's fall very controversial among both i would say reviewers and even just hardcore Final Fantasy fans for a number of reasons, and, and I couldn't even begin to articulate why. So kind of give a lay of the land of, of what's the the deal with this game? Why are so many people up in arms about it? So it's a similar thing with Babylon's Fall. It's a, it's a full price game. So digitally, uh, the game was, gosh, what was it? I think it was 50 bucks. So the thing is, in the US, it didn't receive a physical release. So if you wanted to play this game in the US, you needed to spend $50 on a digital game. Now, other regions did get physical. But then... The controversy comes in the fact that the game uses like a mobile game interface. So you boot this game up, it looks like a mobile game. And it has a sort of like battle pass style thing where it's got skins and, you know, the how do you unlock cloud? You have to get the battle pass. So people were like up in arms over this. But the thing is, people were very misinformed. And, you know, I have a YouTube video that goes over all this. So I won't like regurgitate it too much. But in a nutshell, essentially, most pretty much everything that... Uh, 
you can unlock in the game and get and everything. The game is giving you kind of for free. So you don't have to spend a penny on this game, despite what people were kind of like believing, at least right now. So you can pick the game up, you can play it, get everything, no problems. Because to get the battle pass, they actually give you the currency that you need to buy it right off the bat, which is like 800 gems, which is like 10 bucks or whatever. Um, there's also a free version, so you can actually try the game and play the main game mode um, with other players that have the paid version. So it's a nice way to sample the game. People are just really upset over the full price tag, the season pass, and the fact that it looks like a mobile game and seemingly like lacks a lot of content for a kart racer. However, I had a ton of fun with this game, being a Final Fantasy fan and a kart racing fan. Not everything needs to be Mario Kart. I know everybody's like, oh, I'll just play Mario Kart instead. But the thing is, I'm kind of tired of Mario Kart, at least until whatever the next iteration is, because... I also feel like that game's been out so long now that if I ever tried to play that game online, I'd get my butt kicked so hard. Oh, yeah. But it's nice to have a fresh start, play a game that's brand new. You learn as you go with everybody else. Uh, great Final Fantasy remixes. Cute. F- I mean, who doesn't want to play a Chocobo at a kart racing game? I mean, he's so freaking cute. Oh, yeah. And I-, I just had a lot of fun with it. I mean, the thing is, it's a kart racer without any crazy gimmicks. It's really hard these days to get a pure kart racing game that's good and can have some longevity and doesn't have some kind of stupid gimmick and that's exactly what this game is it's essentially a mario kart style kart racer with tracks that are far too short most of them unfortunately um with a with an interesting power-up system so like you can evolve your spell so if you you get fire you can collect it a few more times and get fire or fireaga and uh you know it's it's got its own little unique twists on on the genre and i had so much fun with it i was grinding online time trails one of my things Give me a game that has a built-in online leaderboard for like a time trial of something, and I will be there. So the thing that killed my thumb is that I was doing these marathon sessions of like grinding for world records in time trial tracks. So, you know, I'm competing against everybody around the world, Japan, whatever, everywhere. And I was grinding for these top times, and it just killed my thumb. It, it ends up that if you sit there and stream a game for 10 hours straight, constantly holding a, a button down the whole time for gas um yeah it will destroy the nerves in your thumb yeah that'll eventually do some damage that'll do some damage to you yeah so i had a ton of fun with it for like the first week and then i had to go on break from it because uh you know i didn't want to destroy my thumb more and now that it's recovered i do want to go back to it because my viewers have been telling me that the game is starting to die so the thing about the main thing about this game, the main game mode is GP mode, which is actually a battle royale style elimination mode. So it's 64 players Whoa. and then it's races of eight people. And then it's like a bracket bracket style. So you'll race against eight people. Whoever wins goes on and so forth. So on until you get to the final eight players and uh, you can play that in the free to play trial version. So you can actually download that right now and, and give it a try. But as you can imagine, Filling a lobby of 64 players, even though it's pulling from like all different lobbies, it's not like a true 64 player lobby. It's pulling from all over the place. So like somebody that's on their 64 player round, it could actually be pulling from the 32 player round, for example, uh, to kind of like fill in gaps. But apparently the game is starting to die and it's starting to get harder to fill up lobbies. So I definitely want to go back and have some fun with it before that game bites the dust. Or if Square Enix makes the thing fully free to play and doesn't charge you any money for like all the content. Um, like people expected them to maybe that'll revive it so i would encourage you to check the the demo for that game out soon while okay. you still can enjoy it okay i'm making notes here any chance you think square enix eventually releases like chocobo racing gp deluxe that has all the content unlocked for 50 bucks or do you think this is just gonna they're just gonna ride this out into the sunset they don't really care they're definitely not going to do something like that because man that would be 
I, I, I don't I don't think them re-releasing this game physically uh, again with full price would work unless they uh, come out with like a PlayStation version or something that is a like hey pay twenty bucks and get all the content that's been released up until now maybe yeah. they could do something like that. I honestly think the only thing that's going to save it is once again just like Babylon's Fall and there's a there's a theme here with Square Enix. They got to make it free to play entirely. Don't charge people 50 bucks for this game and then expect them to look into season pass content. Even though I've gone over the season pass, it's not as bad as people think. But in a lot of people's minds, they don't want to have anything to do with the season pass, no matter what, if they paid full price for a game. And I understand that. Yeah, that's a shame. Well, I'll definitely check out the demo. Another one on my list to check out. Um, I watched you play it. I also watched a good friend of our show, uh, Blinkoom. Watched him stream a little bit as well. So... I definitely want to check it out. I mean, I, I want to be VV on a little kart racer, riding around town, listening to some Final Fantasy tunes. Yeah, and and that's exactly what you're the you're the person that this game is made for. If you're a Final Fantasy fan, you just want to listen to some good music, chill out for a bit with a, a good kart racer. That's exactly what it is. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, any other uh, games that you've been playing recently you wanted to to highlight? Just the last one. I did you know play Kirby uh, in the Forgotten oh, yeah. Land. I. I beat the the initial part of that game i didn't beat the the full like secret or uh full ending that you got to do in the post game but I, I really enjoyed that that was it's just good it just feels good to get a good 3d platformer that isn't mario from nintendo these days mm, yeah um as i've always said like i like my 3d platformers to be gimmick free as much as possible and while you can argue argue that Kirby himself is a gimmick with especially the mechanic in this game of like inhaling machines and cars and all that kind of stuff. It just it, it felt fun. It I, I like you mentioned earlier uh, in, in the podcast, like 3D platformers just aren't what they used to be anymore. We get them so seldomly and a lot of them are indie efforts. So to get like a triple A platformer that feels like it could have been, you know, released a decade or two ago is, is exactly what I'm looking for. I, I like 3D platformers that don't try to reinvent the wheel and that's kind of what kirby gave me and i was happy with it yeah i'm with you it's my most anticipated game coming into this year uh it, we really have never really gotten a kirby game that's been fully 3d i guess my only question for you is and i've only beaten the first world boss so i really haven't gotten very far in the game is this really scratching the 3d platforming kirby dreams that you've had over the years because to me, at least initially, it still kind of feels like a Mario 3D world, Mario 3D land, and less kind of Mario Galaxy, Mario Odyssey. So I went into this game not because I avoided all the trailers and stuff, so I um, I didn't know what to expect. Out of it. I didn't know if it was going to be more of a Mario 64 style game, which is what I was hoping it would have been, because that's my f- preferred style. Collect-a-thon like Banjo-Kazooie Mario 64, you know, something like that. Um, because I'm not the biggest fan of Mario 3D world style platformers, like those sort of like linear feeling top-down mm-hmm. isometric kind of games which is what this is however i think the thing that really won me over in this is the sort of like post-apocalyptic setting which is really refreshing for a three platform especially from nintendo so i feel like because of the really unique setting it, it kind of helped um help my experience with the game because I, I was just getting a little tired of the nintendo formula of like the squeaky clean mario levels with all the bright like pipes and walls and stuff like that. And this game kind of takes it in a completely different direction. So it was fresh enough for me. But what I hope this leads into is that whatever the next Kirby game is, they push the the 3D even further in that Mario 64 direction. And, you know, according to the developers, the reason Kirby never went 3D before is because they just had such a hard time actually making 3D work in Kirby's world. Oh, interesting. And they do a lot of smoke and mirrors in this game to make it so that it, it actually functions. 
Okay. Very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to playing more. I'm with you. I've, I've never been the biggest fan of Mario 3D World. And even more recently, like I loved having Sackboy, a big adventure on the PS5 at launch, but it still was kind of scratching that same Mario 3D World itch as opposed to what I'd love to see of a, as a, like a Sackboy Mario 64 type of game. So uh, if Kirby can kind of match that here in the future, that'd be pretty neat. But well, if that's all from you, Pete, I will kind of quickly rattle through some of my games so we can get to the main topic of the show. How does that sound? Sounds good. Cool. Well, so the first game that I'll mention, um, you know, I recently got an Xbox Series X, as I kind of mentioned on last week's episode, kind of talked to you a little bit about um, earlier this week. There were only two games on the Xbox One era that I really wanted to get. The first was Rare Replay, because I'm such a big fan of everything on the N64 era, you know, your Banjo-Kazooie's, your Jeff Wars Gemini's, um, your Perfect Darks, and all that kind of stuff. Um, But beyond that, the only other game that really caught my attention on the Xbox One side of things was Rise Son of Rome, which was a launch title for the Xbox One. Beyond that, you had your standard fare, you had a couple more Forza Horizons, you had a couple additional Gears of War type games, but Rise Son of Rome, like I've always been fascinated with um, Rome and, and, and that setting and just like these large, massive scale wars. Like that's why I'm such a big fan of like Battle for Middle Earth on the Xbox 360 and even the first game on PC where you just control two or you just ha- you control an army and you just have these two massive arsenals of people clashing on a battlefield. And while Rise Son of Rome doesn't necessarily scratch that itch. I still feel like it's a it's a really fun game and even, you know, gosh, 8 years after release, it still looks really imp- impressive graphically for those that kind of aren't aware. It's a third-person action game, definitely a product of its time because the combat is heavily influenced by the kind of Batman Arkham counter system where when you get really kind of close up with three to four guys around you, um, you're prompted to after a couple swings of your sword to either press Y or X, the enemies kind of like get highlighted with either yellow or blue to kind of prompt you to press those buttons. And there's a counter mechanic as well, which lead to these like super intense kills. I think it's about eight chapters long. And the first two or three chapters are, um, again, really impressive graphically, a lot of fun to play. But once you get to kind of chapter four or five, you kind of realize like, oh, okay, this is this is kind of really all this game has to offer is you kind of just go from one area to the next, very linear. There's some collectibles here and there, but for the most part, you're kind of just whacking people, a fun Batman Arkham kind of counter system. And uh, that's kind of it. But Pete, I'm curious, did you play Rise Son of Rome shortly after the launch of the Xbox One? Yeah, so I got it with uh, with the launch of the, the console and I thought it was like the perfect launch game. That's the kind of game that I want during my console launch, kind of just like a, a technical showpiece. And that game was really good looking at the time when Xbox One came out. And, uh, you know, you kind of expect those games around the launch, something linear, story based, not exceedingly long, kind of repetitive. It, it reminded me a lot of like Knack, for example, when that is a similar experience, a game that's very repetitive, kind of just like, you know, you're one and done with it. Um, it kind of overstays its welcome, but you still enjoy it because it's it's a fun technical showpiece. And I, I actually revisited Rise for the first time right before the Series X launch. So to sell, it's funny what I did to celebrate the release of the Series X, I played Rise, and what I did to celebrate the the release of the PlayStation Five right before it came out, I played Knack. So <laughs> that gives you an idea of the the way that I hype myself up for new 
console releases, I go back and play, you know, my favorite launch games from previous gens. That's but, amazing. Uh, yeah, the way you described it is exactly kind of how I felt about it. You, like you mentioned, once you get to kind of like that halfway point, you you start you start to feel it a bit. It's not the kind of game that you want to burn through very quickly. Uh, the story for me was never really super interesting, but you know, I kind of like I really crave those style of games these days because you just don't get games like Rise anymore. A triple A style game that's sort of like just a nice action hack and slash button masher, even though in that game you can't really always button mash, like you mentioned, there's a lot of QTE style stuff, so you gotta be very conscious of what mm-hmm. you're doing. But sometimes you just like to sit down for a weekend and just play something mindless like that, and that game scratches the itch. Well, and kind of, you know, on the other side of things for PS4, a game that I'm kind of a big fan of, I know a lot of people tend to hate on it, um, that came out either at launch or shortly after the launch of PS4 is the Order 1886. I, f- I feel like it kind of captures that same launch, you know, era magic where it's kind of mindless. It doesn't do anything in the story department that really wows you. It's, but it still just kind of captures that early launch fever of a game that you kind of want to just play right when you open and get a new fancy console. I still need to check that one out. It's it's on my list. Um, and I'm really intrigued by like the letterboxing effect that that game has. I find that very fascinating. I know it's like a very uh, divisive feature of that game, but just visually, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting for a game to go that direction. And yeah, I look for it. Listen, any game that I can beat in one sitting, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on. I, oh, I yeah. love sort of like those five to seven hour kind of games. I think you like Order 1886. I mean, it definitely feels like a Gears of War game, but the setting is definitely a lot different with the werewolves and lichens. And it definitely seems like a game up your alley. So if you ever do stream it, I'm, I'm curious to tune into that for sure. But outside of Rise, I'll quickly go down the next two games so we can kind of get into the main topic of the show here. I talked last week, Perfect Dark, one of my favorite games growing up on the N64, but like most of the games from my childhood, Banjo-Kazooie, Kingdom Hearts, I, I could just rattle off umpteen games over. I never beat it as a kid. I never really focused on the story necessarily. I just played Combat Simulator with 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 bots and my buddies for dozens and dozens, dozens if not hundreds of hours. But I literally, last week in two sittings, sat down, played the story, got through it all, uh, played on the easiest difficulty, but man... 22 years later, which it's crazy to say that Perfect Dark came out 22 years ago back in 2000, but I think it still holds up so well. I never played the remaster on Xbox 360, so I was so wowed when I saw um, kind of the villa at the very title screen and even Joanna looking a lot more polished, a lot of the other enemies looking more polished as well, even though how, even though they have kind of a static facial animation that never moves even when they're talking, that's a little jarring, but Still a lot of fun. Getting to that final boss was um, cumbersome to say the very least. Not very fun. That kind of showed its age a bit, but it was nice to see credits roll on, on a lifelong favorite of mine. So uh, one question I have for you, Pete. I think we're both in the same camp where we both prefer Diddy Kong Racing to Mario Kart 64. Is that true? Is that true? Can you can you confirm that? Uh, the more I think about it over the years, yeah, I think I always preferred the sort of story-based structure of Diddy Kong Racing and uh, and whatnot. To I mean, Mario Kart 64 is legendary, but I, I just I don't know. There was I have a soft spot for Diddy Kong 64, so yeah, I guess you can say that. Okay, and then GoldenEye versus Perfect Dark. What would you say? What's your gut response to that? Oh, it's 100% GoldenEye because I actually tried getting into Perfect Dark. I think I rented it and uh, I had a hard time getting into it, honestly. I don't... Really? Because, you know, we're talking two decades ago and 
I can't specifically remember what it was, but I really struggled to to get into it initially back then. Um, maybe it was just the darker, like not color. I mean, not to say Golden Eye super colorful, but there was just something about the weapons or the, the environments or something. I just remember not really getting into it much, and I still haven't. I haven't touched Perfect Dark since I rented it back uh, originally on the N64. Wow. I'm not sure if that'll change anytime soon, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I just have, strangely enough, very little interest in the N64 Perfect Dark. Okay, okay. No hate. I'm just curious. Just curious. Had to ask you for your opinion on that. But um, all right, well, the last game that I'll mention, I won't go into all the ins and outs. I mean, what can be said that hasn't already been said about this N64 classic? Banjo-Kazooie, another game from my youth that I never rolled credits on. I never got to the end. Click Clock Wood just ruined me as a kid. Climbing up that tree, the various seasons... The platforming is so damn difficult in Click Clock Wood. Even today, I made it to Click Clock Wood this week. I've collected all the jiggies up to this point, all the musical notes, all the honeycombs. I'm going for 100% trying to beat this game as an adult. But Click Clock Wood is still really challenging. Pete, I'm curious. Do you remember, one, did you beat this game as a kid? And do you remember how challenging Click Clock Wood was? So... I have a very hard time recalling like my earlier days with Banjo Kazooie because it's getting to that point now where like N64 games, if I haven't played them since like the original release, my memory starts to get foggy on them. I'm pretty sure that I finished Banjo Kazooie back then, but I can't fully attest to it. Now, I did revisit it on uh, the Rare Replay collection, and I did not finish that playthrough. I can tell you that much. And I didn't make it that far in the playthrough either. Um, but I have watched people stream it recently and i kind of have vague memories of it but like i said it's kind of distant for me and it's probably something that i should change because i do love banjo kazooie um but it's just a it's one of those games where like i remember the earlier levels very fondly but Mm -hmm. like the later game stuff for me maybe i pushed it out of my mind for for reasons well and and to kind of piggyback on that comment i mean i don't know how you can't for, or how you'd ever forget Mumbo's Mountain and Treasure Trove Cove. Those are the first two levels that you kind of stumble upon. Freeze Easy Peak is another one that like I still feel like is really fun to go back to. But there's like Bubblegum Swamp and um, a couple of other ones that like Rusty Bucket Bay that visually aren't that appealing. And even some of the jiggies that you have to get are kind of um, not, not as fun to get as some of the those earlier levels. So um, you're probably not too far off from how you felt, felt when you were younger um, than how you'd feel today if you revisited it. But what you what you're saying is true. That game, now that you mention it, I, I do remember how hard that game is in certain levels. Certainly more difficult than Mario sixty four. I remember that. Yeah, but in any case, it's still been such a treat to go back to. I mean, Grant Kirkhope's you know soundtrack and compositions for that game are timeless. I mentioned Grant pretty much in every episode, but Banjo Kazooie is certainly the standout game uh, for the many games that he's composed the soundtracks to. So. Maybe during next episode, I'll talk about the the Gruntilda battle because I've never made it that far. So more impressions during next episode. But Pete, we are nearly an hour and 20 minutes in the show. We haven't gotten to the main topic of the show. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I'd still like to pick your brain. I have a little trivia segment queued up. So what do you say we transition into the main topic of the show? Sounds good. All right, let's do it.
All right, Pete, we are in the main topic of the show. I figured I cannot not have you on the show and do a little trivia segment. You know, dating back to your old Jane Gamers days, you're a big fan of trivia, right? Depends on the topic. <laughs> okay, okay, well, we'll see here. I think you're going to like we'll this see. one. You're going to like this one. So there's, it's no secret that the price of games continue to skyrocket, get out of hand a little bit. And I don't know anyone that's as in tune with the price of games as you. Uh, so for those that aren't aware, you kind of mentioned it earlier in the episode that you do weekly eBay streams every Saturday, finding deals for the viewers or the users, as you used to call them. And you recently started a YouTube series called Price Check, Predicting the Prices. Is that right? Okay, well, let's flip the idea on its head a little bit. So dating back to, I think, as early as 2018, a little bit earlier than that, I've kept a spreadsheet of every game, game-related item that I've purchased on eBay, the date I bought it, and the price I paid. So I have 10 games right out of the Ari Lewis 2011 library. So for this little trivia game, I'm going to tell you the game, when I purchased it, kind of the condition of it, and then you can tap into your game pricing knowledge to try and guess what I paid back then. How does that sound? Sounds very interesting indeed. Okay. So I also have some averages for what the games go for nowadays. I'm sure you're very in tune with those, but I got to preface it by saying with every R.A. Lewis 2011 list of games, there's some jank-ass Disney stuff, there's some licensed games, but several of the games here were largely influenced by your recommendation over the years, Pete. So um, hopefully you find this entertaining. Certainly, hopefully the listeners find it entertaining as well. But I have 10 games lined up and uh, hopefully it won't take too long. I have a couple of additional ones too. We end up running through this pretty quickly here. But the first game on my list is Bubsy 3D on PS1, a game that you've kind of, you know, saying the praises about. I mean, I think you created an entire video dedicated to it saying that, please, people, play this game. It's not as bad as people make it out to be, right? Yeah, that's a that's that's a whole, yeah, that's a big topic, that game, indeed, in terms of, like, its historical significance and just the way it plays. But, yeah, you can say I'm a fan of Bubsy 3D. Okay, so I purchased this game on August 17th, 2018. So about four years ago. What do you think I paid for Bubsy 3D four years ago? What was the game kind of going for, do you think? Now, these purchases, were they on eBay or were they in purchase, uh, person person purchases? They were, they were all on eBay. All these purchases were on eBay. And my copy of Bubsy 3D, um, obviously it's black label, really good condition, manual. Everything I say is in pristine condition, manual, complete, unless I say otherwise. Okay. And does do these prices, do you know if they include the shipping or is it just the base price without shipping? These are shipped, shipped prices. Yep. Okay. For that, I'm going to say, because I do, I do remember when I, I bought my copy of Bubsy 3D, I remember specifically when it was, but I think it was somewhere around like the $15, $20 price range. So I'm going to say that you paid... $18. Holy shit, Pete. I paid $17.99. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> wow. You're crazy. Crazy. Um, now, does yours have the map? I don't think so. I had to pull it off the shelf. I don't think it does. That can add a little bit of value to your copy of Bubsy 3D. So if you ever check it out, there's actually like a, a little fold out um, poster that's like the, the in game, one of the levels, like an in game, couple of in game maps, if I remember correctly. And that's actually a little hard to find. And there's two versions of Bubsy 3D. So there's, um, 
There's one without this feature, and then there is one with it. I forget exactly what it is, but it's like the Gold X Award, where it's like Game of the Year, kind of like accolade kind of thing on the front. I forget the specifics of it, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like a funny little addition for a game that was so terribly received, trying to sort of tout uh, how good it was on its cover. Interesting. Okay. Well, what I kind of also did is I looked at some of the more recent prices over the past two to three weeks, kind of what was it selling for? And it looks like Bubsy 3D is going for around $20, $35, depending on the condition of the copy. That's kind of what I was seeing nowadays. That sounds about right. Yeah, it's definitely closer to the $30 price price range now, mostly because it actually is a fairly uncommon game. It's not something that you see in every gonna be honest like i look at a lot of ps1 lots and that is almost never in there and that to me is a good indicator of how hard a game is to find how often do you see it in a, a listing with other games yeah yeah for sure all right well we'll keep moving along here so the second game is one that i bought off your recommendation you did speed runs i think you even went to games done quick to speed run this game and that is star wars super bomb bad racing on the playstation 2 okay so i bought this in july of 2018 what do you think i paid for this Hmm. i mean that game is still pretty cheap so back then i can't imagine that you would have paid a lot for this so i'm gonna say shipped you paid eleven dollars four dollars and 95 cents i basically shipping which i basically paid shipping (laughs) for this game (laughs) that was a good deal (laughs) yeah yeah, Super Bombad Racing. Well, fun, fun soundtrack to that one, too. That, that actually is a pretty good racer. Honestly, I, I feel like it's one of the most underrated car racers out there, especially if you're a Star Wars fan. The music is phenomenal. The The tracks are really fun. And th- the thing about that game is you may not realize it the first time you play through it, but if you ever play it again, you really need to get in tune with how the, the jumping works in that. It is almost like a platformer um, car racing game. The way that you can jump and boost while jumping, you can just be flying through the levels, jumping around everywhere. So if you've if you've played through that game and you haven't really taken advantage of the jump mechanic, you should really try it again. Okay, okay, good to know, good to know. I was I was not very in tune with that mechanic at all. So taking notes here, and as you might expect, you kind of talked about this game really is not very expensive nowadays, and so I th- more recent um, auctions I was seeing ten to fifteen bucks. So. Um, sounds about right star wars is your thing you like kart racers check it out you can get it pretty inexpensive nowadays i'm assuming you want it for like auction for a dollar and paid four dollars shipping right that had to have been what it was so i didn't yeah the prices that i've always maintained have always just been the final item price um including shipping i highly doubt anybody's gonna do a 4.99 buy it now free shipping no so that way. person you they were practically paying you to take it off their hands at that point boy exactly exactly all right so the third game i honestly could not believe how much this game has gone up um just mind-boggling to me and that's rocket robot on wheels on the n64 now keep in mind i got this cart only and i bought this in august of 2019 yeah, that game is ridiculously expensive complete now, like 300 to 400 plus dollars. Yeah, complete. it's pretty wild. This is actually an N64 platform I still haven't played and, and really want to. Um, I've heard good things about it, but I'm going to say cart only. I'm not the best at cart only prices, but I'm going to say that you paid cart only now, I think is about 50 to 80 or something like that. I'm going to say that you paid 17 as well for this. You said you think seventeen? Is that what you said? Yeah, seventeen. Yeah, forty dollars actually. 
Wow. So I probably paid. Oh, actually. Oh, yeah, you're right. 2019. Yeah, that seems about right. Yeah. So I forgot how crazy N64 has been lately. Oh, it's it's getting so out of hand. I'm glad that I really cleaned up on the library, you know, a couple of years back, um, you know, through your eBay streams and just kind of exploring the library myself, trying to clean up on all the 3D platformers I wanted. So I paid 40 for it. I couldn't believe even card only what this game has been going for in recent weeks and months. I was seeing um, as low as around 60, but on average, I'm seeing between 80 and 110. For wow, just yeah. for just the cart, which is just mind-boggling well, to me. I think one of the things about that cart as well is N64 carts get bootlegged a ton. And because that one comes in the red cart, people know that what they're bidding on is 100% most likely authentic. So I think that also helps drive that game's price up even more. Yeah, for sure. But a uh, little fun fact, Sucker Punch, I believe, was the developer of this. So if you're familiar with uh, Infamous, Sly Cooper, they got their humble beginnings with Rocket Robot on Wheels. Yeah. So... I got I to gotta check that one out. Yeah, that'd be a fun stream. I'd definitely tune into that one. But next up on my list, I didn't know that this game had gone up until you brought it up in one of your eBay streams. A game I remember renting from Hollywood Video many, many years ago because I was so fond of the film when it came out. And that's The Mummy on PlayStation 1. I bought this on uh, February 2019. What do you think I paid for this one? So I'm trying to... Th- remember back around when this game started getting a bit more pricey and i do kind of remember seeing a price increase of this like i can kind of remember maybe about two years ago it was sitting around 30 bucks so i'm gonna say 2019 you probably paid something around 20 dollars for that one 9.99 shipped for this so yeah i definitely got away with a bargain here um a really good condition copy it kind of plays like a um I don't know, a knockoff Tomb Raider wannabe, if you will. Uh, it's a decent little game. I mean, at least that's 10-year-old Rusty talking. So nowadays, who knows how good it is, but it, it's okay. It's okay. Um, and more recently, I was looking at some um, sold listings. Looks to go around 35 to 40 if you're looking to get a complete good condition copy. Um, yep. So so yeah, The Mummy on PS1. Next on my list, Pete, we kind of talked about it a little bit when we were getting into the whole Xbox 360 achievement discussion. Peter Jackson's King Kong. I bought this in July of 2020. So what do you think I, now, I paid for this one? Was that, was that still riding? Now, was that, had they shown a trailer yet for King Kong versus Godzilla? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I don't remember when they first showed the trailer for that. Yeah, I can't say. I can't say that. Not because I don't want to give anything away, because I, I really don't know. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Um, hold on. Let me, let me. I'm just going to do a quick Google search. When did the Kong vs. Godzilla trailer release? Let me see this, because this is a factor. Okay, it says the first full trailer was released on January 24th, 2020. Okay, so the, the trailer hadn't been released yet. So... I'm going to say that you got that game for $13. $50, Pete. I got a little bit of fear $50 missing $50 in 2020? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know why I paid $50 for this. I don't know if it was some kind of fear of missing out thing, but I feel like back then I remember you talking about certain 360 games going up and King Kong was one oh, of them. wait a minute shoot we're talking about 2020 that was that was like the the huge year of price spike yeah i didn't even consider that i mean think about it i mean it's the pandemic everyone's inside everyone's going back to ebay buying a whole bunch of stuff um people don't have anything better to do but buy any buy stuff on ebay so uh, and i was one of them 
50 bucks I purchased for. Um, I wonder what year that game, because that game was dirt cheap for a very long time. Oh, like, yeah. I'm not joking with that $13. Like, that game, you can get that game for next to nothing for the longest time. And then out of nowhere, it's like, you know what? I guess people woke up, they're like, wait, this is actually a pretty good game. It still looks incredible. It's tied to King Kong and apparently is fairly uncommon. That That is still not a game that you see super often. But I would say, though, in terms of the experience that you get from that game, especially if you're playing it on a Series X, it's it's worth the money. That, it's I'd say that game's worth 50 bucks. Oh, I loved it. I mean, I, I beat it on PS2 when I rented it at Hollywood Video as a kid. Uh, I actually saw this movie on Christmas Day with my mom and my sister, so I was a tremendous fan, of course, coming off the heels of Peter Jackson directing The Lord of the Rings. Had to see King Kong when it first came out, and I played through it on 362. It is a great first-person action game. It's a really fun time. So uh, nowadays, Amazing launch game. Oh my gosh. Yeah, incredible. And uh, fortunately for anyone that's interested in it, prices have come down considerably. You can find it around 30 to 50-ish, depending on the condition of the copy you're finding. Uh, but if you scatter it out or save it on your um, search listings, you can probably get a pretty um, decent copy for cheaper. So yep. keep an eye out for King Kong if it's if it's of interest to you. This next one may surprise many. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone on PS2. And I bought this in July of 2018. So I know that game is fairly pricey these days. Like now it's somewhere between 50 and $60. I have absolutely no idea what that game used. Like, I'm not sure if that was a game that went up dramatically at some point or if it's always kind of steadily been decently priced. But I'm I'm going to say that I'm going to assume that it's always kind of been somewhat up there. Something tells me. I'm going to say you paid $40 for it. So I paid $25 for it. and mm-hmm. but, but you're not wrong. Like, when I was searching for it because I was trying to get a complete um, collection of the Harry Potter games between PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 3... Uh, which I've since done, but Sorcerer's Stone was the last one on my list that I needed to get. And I was seeing copies around that time for $25, $30, $35, and even as much as $40. Um, and I couldn't believe it, but there's a whole history around, like it came out long after uh, the movie had been released. I think Chamber of Secrets on PS2 had already come out at that point, and then Sorcerer's Stone came out after the fact because it had already come out on Game Boy Advance and, and PS1 and stuff like that. So interesting history behind that one. But um, yeah, 25 when I purchased it back in 2018. Now copies are going for like 50, 60 bucks, depending on the condition and if you want to get it complete or not, which is just pretty interesting. Yeah, and who knows what's going to happen to the price of that with uh, Hogwarts Legacy coming out. Exactly. That's why I'm glad I kind of cleaned up on the Harry Potter collection when I did, because especially those PS3 copies like um, Deathly Hallows, Half-Blood Prince, they were kind of at the very tail end of the ps3's life cycle so not as many copies were printed um plus they reviewed horribly so um yeah you're gonna pray a pay a pretty penny for those as well nowadays but anyways we got a couple more here before we close things out pete so the land before time returned to the great valley a 3d platformer on ps1 i bought this in may of 2018 how much do you think i played for uh Little Littlefoot on the uh, the PS One. God, I don't. Need, I I can't even tell you what the heck that game is worth now. Um, gotta be still still cheap. So I'm gonna say you paid six dollars for it. Six dollars and thirty one cents, Pete. Really close. Yeah, I figured because <laughs> I'm thinking. You know, back then I'm thinking about those games. I'm like, man, nobody. That's the kind of game where it would be up for bid for a dollar and nobody would bid on it. So I kind of figured it might have been something like that. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I did get another um, Land Before Time. Land Before Time game. It's a 2D platformer for five bucks, 
And I did get it for $1 plus shipping. So you're not off base there. You're not off base. Okay. But talk about a game that would be just a complete jank ass game for you to stream. Land Before Time, Return of the Great Valley, a 3D platformer. Talk about really jarring and laughable until you cry cutscenes and voice acting. Oh boy. It's, it's bad. You'd, you'd get a, you'd get a kick out of that one for sure. And uh, check it, it, out. it could be yours for eight or $12 Pete on eBay right now. So consider checking that one out on your next eBay stream. I'm going to skip over this next one and get to these final two um, that I think you'll be very in tune with the price of these heart of darkness on the PS one. I got this with the manual and the 3d glasses and I bought this in May of 2019. Okay. The thing about that game too is like a lot of people don't even know it's supposed to come with 3D glasses. So pe- some people buy it or bid on it without even knowing that that's something that they could get with it. Um, but historically, like even back then, the 3D glasses haven't really affected the price too much. But I'm going to say that you paid $25 for that. I actually got it for 38 bucks. I definitely paid a premium for this one because um, you talked so highly of this game over the years, um, and you're really the only person that I've ever heard of talk about it, and I wanted to make sure I got the authentic experience, getting the 3D glasses, the manual, and a nice complete copy. So yeah, 38 bucks I paid for this back in 2019. That's still, I mean, that's still a good price for it. I was just thinking that maybe you got some kind of crazy deal on it, which... You know, that game used to go for 15, 20 bucks. And uh, man, I used to sing praises about it back then and it seemed like not many people were listening. So and I really do think that game will continue to go up in price because it really is a cult classic. Well, and it's interesting you say that because the last copy sold on April 11th that I found with the 3D glasses sold for $75. So um, wow, it's getting expensive. Yeah, definitely getting pricey up there. But this last one I have to kind of round us out here, Pete, is one that um, it's a series I know you're very fond of, and it's a series that we're finally getting the remaster that we've been teased for years, and that's Klonoa 2 on the PS2. And I bought this yep. back in July of 2018. So what do you think I paid for it back then? I mean, that game around then was still decently pricey. It wasn't dirt cheap. I'm going to say that you paid $55 for that. $39.99. 40 bucks. 40 bucks shit is what I paid back then. And I got a complete copy. Really nice. Got the manual and everything. So I was thankful I got it when I did because um, before the remaster was announced, uh, or it's a remake, right? It's not a, it's not a remaster. They call it a remake. It's kind of like a... It's 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 weird. It's It kind of is like a remaster, but it's, it is updating the game pretty dramatically at least Klonoa 2 that they're um because the the Klonoa 1 is based off the Wii version and you can definitely tell it's it's gotten a facelift but it is like one for one based off the Wii version the Klonoa 2 they've drastically overhauled that game it is essentially the same as the PS2 game but it's it's a it's a big update okay yeah I cannot wait to get that on PlayStation 5 uh I might even double dip and get it on Switch too just to increase our chances of getting another Klonoa game in the future. Well, just so you know, too, it's exclusive. It's a timed exclusive for Switch. Oh, is it really? First. Well, then I, I have to buy yeah, it. Switch. So you're going to, if you want to play it day one, it's uh, Switch and then eventually it'll come out on other platforms. Okay. That's good to know. Well, I will definitely be double dipping then. But uh, recent copies, because I think of the remake, remaster, whatever you want to call it, um, it looks like prices have come down a little bit. Uh, this was climbing pretty dramatically. And I saw copies selling in the past couple of weeks and months for around 80 to 110, depending on condition. Sounds about right. And I do think 
that this remake slash remaster is going to bring the price down a bit because it's it's essentially going to be the definitive version of Klonoa 2 at this point. So anybody that wants to play Klonoa 2, they have no reason to buy the PS2 version unless they're just one of the people that really likes playing the original versions of games, but that's an expensive original version. Um, I don't think the price of Klonoa will be affected, but Klonoa 2, I can see that coming down because it's just going to be way more accessible and the thing about Klonoa 1 and I don't I don't think it'll come down too much because uh, visually it's the new one uh, the, well the original PS1 version still is like there's nothing else quite like it visually in terms of you know the 2D sprites on top of 3D backgrounds there's not a lot of games like that and I think hardcore Klonoa fans will, mm-hmm. will always kind of seek out that version of the game absolutely yeah no I loved playing it on the the Wii Um, and I have the original on the Vita that I bought off the PSN store uh, many years ago, but looking forward to that remaster very much so. But anyways, Pete, that's a wrap. Do you have fun? Was that a fun segment? Hopefully. You know, I had a feeling that you were going to do something with prices, but I didn't expect the switch up of having me guess the prices you paid a few years ago. That was, uh, that was fun. Very, very interesting to hear, you know, what the heck some games are going for back then. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have plenty more. So when I bring it back on the show, maybe at some point in the future, uh, we, we can circle back on this segment in the future to uh, see what R.I. Lewis 2011 paid for games, you know, in the past three to five years should be fun. But anyways, Pete, I want to thank you so, so much for, you know, returning to the show, uh, especially on such short notice to talk about uh, a whole slew of things. And, um, you know, as we come to the end of the show, I'd love for you to uh, kind of puff yourself up a little bit and share with the people, where can they find you on the internet? Yeah, sure. So my main uh, place that you can find me is on Twitch. I stream there most nights and that's uh, twitch.tv slash Pete door. And that's two R's, not two O's. Um, you'll find me there live, you know, most, most evenings, East coast, somewhere around seven o'clock. Other than that, I occasionally post uh, YouTube content, essentially like, you know, whenever a game comes out that's getting crapped on and i feel like i gotta be there to rescue it and say hey, <laughs> it's not so bad apparently that's what i'm doing these days on youtube yeah um i still, I still got to do a video for babylon's fall eventually but you know i gotta be ready for the pitchforks to come out for that one. Oh yeah um but yeah you, you can still find me on youtube I, I have a vod channel as well that uh i upload on and essentially if you just search my name pete door anywhere you'll you'll find what you're looking for on youtube twitch my twitter is just to tell you when i'm going live so nothing crazy on there and and that's about it excellent well thanks once again so much pete for joining me on the show this evening uh everyone that is a long time or um even just here to join pete and i for this particular episode many more episodes down the pipeline i actually have a, a great friend of the show queued up i won't say exactly who it is you might be able to guess based on the topic we are going to break down the recent Kingdom Hearts 4 trailer, talk about our hopes and dreams for that game uh, and the series moving forward. So stay tuned for that episode here in the next couple of weeks. And uh, otherwise, one last time, Pete, I just want to thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Well, we'll see you back in maybe 130 episodes here in like another uh, four years or so. But anyway, well, maybe sooner than that. <laughs> oh, hopefully, hopefully. Well, maybe maybe by the time you have me back on Elder Scrolls 6 might have a uh, a new trailer out or something. Yeah, we'll see everyone back in 2030. It'll be a great time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, when the PS6 is out. But thanks once again, everyone, for tuning in. We will see all of you fine people in the next episode.